Soteriology of Don Scotus and of his metaphysics. First point, the decisive contribution, Blessed John Don Scotus, to the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, the argument that he uses, is of course one of the characteristic features. And there is a second conference that the consequent upon the absolute primacy of Jesus and the Immaculate Conception, we can understand those typical features of his soteriology. This is the conference of Father Chakin. There was to be a third conference and Professor Timothy Noon, for very serious reasons, he was unable to make it and his conference didn't arrive. It touched upon the metaphysical character of the Mariology of Scotus and the Mary, Marian character of his metaphysics. And the final conference of Professor Hippolito, who is taken ill and couldn't come, but he's done a very good paper on the anthropological foundations of the Mariology of Scotus. So we'll begin with Alessandro's conference on the de decisive contribution of Blessed John Scotus, the, by read by Trevor Downs. Cardinal Giacomo Bifi acutely said that the theologian is great when he teaches new things, demonstrating that they are old. In our case, Don Scotus is great, not because he invented the truth of the Immaculate Conception, God forbid, but because the arguments that he ingeniously devised to defend the traditional truth were so decisive and convincing that they were a turning point in the history of Catholic theology. The new thing is the argument of the perfect Redeemer, to which correspond the correlated arguments of Mary's perfect redemption and her maximum obligation to Christ. The old thing is the truth of Mary's immaculateness, a truth present ab initio in the sacred deposit of Revelation, but that the majority current of 12th and 13th century theology had lost along the way. The theological method followed by Don Scotus is thus that of putting at the service of tradition an arsenal of arguments in large part new and drawn from the happy marriage of the Catholic faith with the logic and, with greater caution, the metaphysics of Aristotle. It is no accident that Don Scotus was Scottish in origin and English in theological formation. In England, the ground was well prepared for the foundations of his formidable Immaculatus arguments. I refer to culture and precedence that we shall see presently, from which in the 12th century sprung a flourishing theology according to the famous adage of Prosper of Aquitaine, legem credendi leg statuat supplicandi. The rule of belief is established by the rule of prayer. In the Scotian questions pro Immaculata, one is struck by a certain scarcity of biblical foundations. This from a man who in the prologue of Ordinatio had defended sufficiency of Holy Scripture to communicate to us all the truths necessary and sufficient for salvation. The dilemma is resolved by considering that Scotus's concept of Holy Scripture is much broader than that of certain contemporary exegetes. When Don Scotus spoke of Holy Scripture, he meant not simply the literal sense on which certain historical critical exegetes relentlessly insist, but the sense of the letter as the Church understands and explains it 
that is, in the light of tradition, of which the liturgy is an integral part. Thus, in his dense arguments for the Immaculate, he is almost unconcerned with demonstrating the existence of this doctrine in Holy Scripture, well aware that its existence in the tradition attests with certainty its existence, at least implicit, in Scripture as well, for it is the norma normans of tradition. Despite a certain terminological assonance, Scotus's sufficiency of Scripture, not in the least Luther's sola scriptura, the latter concept, is totally foreign to him, as the shadows are foreign to the light of the sun. Father Satimio Manelli will have more to say about this in his talk. One, the antecedents of Immaculatus Doctrine, the cult of the conception and its theological defense, England's preeminence. Originating in the East in the 7th century, the feast of Mary's conception in Anne's womb had a limited spread to Western monastic circles in the 8th century, beginning in Ireland and Sicily, the continuous flux of Western pilgrims ad orientem, and the converse exodus to the West of many Eastern monks as a result of the Islamic invasion and the iconoclast persecution brought with them the happy transplantation into Europe of many Eastern cultural traditions, especially those relating to the Blessed Virgin Mary. The first document attesting the Feast of Conception Mariae in the West is the Martyrology of Tala, a locality near Dublin where St. Melran had founded a renowned monastery. From Ireland, the feast made its way to the Monastery of St. Gaul in Switzerland, where between 750 and 800, it was reproduced in the Order Romanus 16, which contains much valuable information regarding the Feast of the Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which was celebrated in the week before Christmas and preceded by a three-day fast. The Swiss monastery's link with Ireland is evident if we recall that its founder, St. Gaul, was Irish. The monastery in the region take their name from him. His initial companions were also Irish, and they maintained good relations with the mother houses from which they had come. During the initial period of Norman expansion, however, the Feast of Mary's Conception did not make it out of the restricted environment of monastic celebrations. We have to wait until the second half of the 11th century before we find in England abbey liturgical calendars, missals, benedictionals and pontificals with clear indications of the feast Conceptionis Virginis. The first abbeys to publicly celebrate the feast were Winchester and Worcester. The first pontifical for bishops that contains the feast is that of Exeter, antedating 1072. In the Annals of the Abbey of Worcester in 1125, we find the following annotation. The conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary was celebrated first in England. In the 1129 Council of London, the Feast of Mary's Conception received official church approval for the first time. In the 12th century, the Feast of the Conception conquered all of England, efficaciously defended by Benedictine monks, Despite the attacks of St. Bernard, who Gucci of Pizza, Bishop of Ferrara, writes that the Feast of the Conceptio Mariae is celebrated principally in England, 
and Alexander of Neckham defended the legitimacy of the feast from his chair at Oxford. England's contribution to the cult of the Immaculate is plain. Consequently, it is not surprising that England must be ascribed the same preeminence in the field of dogmatics as a further confirmation of the patristic adage, Lex orandi, Lex credendi, first in Marian dogmatics, because first in Marian prayer. It is enough to recall the names of Edmer of Canterbury, Osbert of de Clare, and Nicholas of St Albans, to demonstrate the strong influence and development of Immaculatus Doctrine in England for the defence and understanding, fides quarens intellectum, faith-seeking understanding, of the mystery celebrated. The Franciscans immediately accept the flourishing English Benedictine Immaculatus tradition, especially in the person of William of Ware, who was at Oxford the professor of Blessed Don Scotus, the doctor of the Immaculate par excellence. Blessed Don Scotus was thus none other than the fair material, but is scientific in the proper sense. Following this style, he thoroughly develops not only his own arguments, but also those of his adversaries. When the question is considered as a whole, it is beyond doubt that he wanted to theologically demonstrate, with all of his dialectical ability, Mary's Immaculate Conception. All of the force of his argumentation converges on this point, even if, in absolute, he acknowledges a certain possibility of the alternative solutions. Intellectual honesty obliges him to do this. The then Cardinal Ratzinger would say, in the declaration cited above, that Scotus could not present his own opinions as though they were non-arguable conclusions. It would be out of place and an exaggeration, and this also because the doctrine of the Immaculate is not the result of a fortunate paleographic discovery, nor is it a rigorous deduction from two premises, certain by faith or by the evidence of reason. Not even the traditional cult of Mary's conception was sufficient to settle the purely speculative question of the first instant. Thus, Dan Scotus, who knew, perhaps better than anyone else, the boundary that distinguishes reason and faith without separating them, could not demand an absolute and universal assent to the doctrine of the Immaculate, even though he was deeply convinced of it. There was not yet a dogma, nor the evidence of a rational deduction from premises held by faith. His own deduction proceeded by fittingness, the videtur probabile, of the major premise, notwithstanding the harmony of the doctrine with reason and the innumerable theological arguments of persuasion. Nor could he demand assent of faith to that which the Church, the only authority in this field, had not yet obliged anyone to believe. It would have been an abuse of his position as a theologian, something common in our days, so much so as to render necessary an intervention of the magisterium to remind theologians of their vocation of service to the Church. But something happily rare in the times of glorious medieval theology
Contemporary theologians accuse Scotus of using sibylline and unclear language. They ought to instead take him as an example, an example of humble and obedient service to the Church. The doctrine of the Immaculate is not simply the fruit of intellectual speculation and research on the sources. It is the fruit of seraphic love for the Virgin Mary, illumined by an iron-clad faith. The only authoritative judge of the conclusions of this sort of theology is the magisterium of the Church. The theological principle that leads the subtle doctor to defend the Immaculate with all his ability is, in the final analysis, his famous Videtur Probabile, Quod Excellentius Es Attribuere Mariae. It seems probable that that which is most excellent is to be attributed to Mary, ordinatio number three. As he speaks of the Virgin, the iron logic of the potuit, based on the principle of non-contradiction, harmonically yields to the contemplation of the decuit, or principle of fittingness, where not only the intellect, but also love comes to be an integral part of our theology. The videta probabile enters as a major premise, nearly always implicit in every one of Scotus's Mariological arguments, and after him in all of those of the whole Franciscan school. Three, the argument of the most perfect mediator. I have already made reference to the ingenious argument of the most perfect mediator, which turns the principal objection to the singular privilege into an argument in favor of it. An analysis of this Scotian argument truly admirable for its profundity and clarity is that offered by Francis Lichetus of Brescia in his commentary on the Opus Oxyonensis, published by Luke Wadding at Lyon in 1636 and reprinted by Vives at the end of the 19th century. He reads and comments the text of the Scottish master, identifying the implicit assumptions of his arguments and responding to possible objections. Let us follow the thread of his explanation. Scotus's famous argument can be condensed into the following syllogism, syllogism. If Christ is the most perfect redeemer, then he had to redeem his mother in the most perfect manner. But to redeem in the most perfect manner is to preserve from original sin. Therefore Christ preserved his mother from original sin. Quite appropriately, Lichetus presents the following embarrassing objection. If Christ is truly the most perfect Redeemer, and to redeem in the most perfect manner is to preserve from original sin, then Christ had to preserve all men from original sin. But since he did not do so, can he still be legitimately and properly called a most perfect Redeemer? The Lombard theologian responds, Christ is no less a perfect mediator for having only preserved the Virgin than if he had preserved all men from all sin. He continues, explaining his thought, which is in perfect continuity with the subtle doctors. In order that this be understood, I clarify that the perfection of an agent is not inferred from the fact that it actually acts, but from the fact that it has the power to act, as is the case with God's perfection of omnipotence. 
He is not said to be omnipotent because he makes all that he could make, for he could make many things that he does not make. And if he were said to be omnipotent because he actually makes something, then his perfection would grow ever greater as he made first one thing and then another. But in fact, he is said to be omnipotent because he has the power to immediately produce all things that can be produced. And even if he had not produced anything, he would still be omnipotent. Nevertheless, in order to be known, this omnipotence had to be manifested in some way, and he thus manifested it in the creation of the world, and gave it to be understood that just as he had created one world, so he could have created a thousand. Now, applying this to Christ, I say that the passion of Christ was of such merit before the Trinity that the same Trinity accepted it so much that it was effective even for preserving all men from original sin and could indeed have preserved them by the power of the Trinity which accepted the passion. For it was fitting that the person of Christ be accepted by the Trinity in the highest degree so that he could merit the Congu that any man whatsoever be preserved from sin. For this reason, he is said to be a most perfect reconciler, namely because he has the power to most perfectly reconcile any one whatsoever. And so he is said to be a most perfect reconciler when he preserves just as when he does not preserve. Yet this power of reconciling or preserving in order to be known had to be manifested in someone, and if in someone, then above all, it had to be manifested in the Virgin Mother. Presupposing these things, the doctor's reasoning becomes clear. In other words, Francis Lichetis with Scotus rightly draws attention to God's absolute freedom in his ad extra works, in such wise that these do not correspond to a logic of necessity not even when they have to express the intrinsic perfection of God, Creator and Redeemer. Hieronymus and Monfortino comments in this regard, True reason why something is so is not to be inferred always and, every, and in every case from the way things seem to our intellect and from what appears better, because unless it is guided by right faith, Sooner or later it will go astray, but is rather to be identified on the basis of the end willed by the Creator whenever this end is made known to us via an authority. This end which God intends, we can add three centuries later, after the development the Mariology has had, thanks to popes, mystics, theologians, and approved private revelations, is to make Mary the Queen of the Universe so that all things can return via her to God. According to Scotus, the rectitude or lack thereof of the things that are to be done does not derive from the intellect but from the will of God, which decides the various orders among things and determines that this and that are to manifest the end. These things being willed, the intellect at once grasps their rectitude and reason and justice, which reason and rectitude they lacked, not positively but privatively, in the state of mere possibility, which they received by the active divine intellection, 
before in the order of nature the wills act. Thus the Redeemer's maximum perfection must not be considered in absolute, but in relation to the economy of salvation intended by God from the beginning. This economy is not the best in absolute among the various possible ones, but is the best relative to the supremely free elicited act of the divine will. Once God has determined his will with respect to what is to be worked, his intellect knows this order of the things to be worked, and then there is right reason, that is, the knowledge of rectitude. Not, however, right reason, directive of his operative powers, because the intrinsic perfection of the divine will, which is right in itself, does not necessitate something else to make it right. Now, in that sovereign act of divine will, God has chosen this economy, in which Christ and his mother were to be elevated in perfection and grace above all men, in order that in them his perfection would be manifested, and in the inferior degrees the freedom with which he acts add extra. For the argument of Mary's obligation to Christ in the highest degree, Scotus' second argument in order of importance and effectiveness is a corollary of the first one which we have just reviewed. This second argument considers Mary's maximum obligation, the result of having received from Christ the most perfect redemption. The person reconciled is not obligated to the mediator in the highest degree unless he has received the greatest good that can be had by his mediation. But this is what was done for the Blessed Virgin. Therefore, she is under a greater obligation because the sin and offence were remitted her in a more noble way than the others in whom the sin was present, since it is more noble to remit a sin by preserving from the presence of the sin than it is to permit that the sin be present and then remit it afterwards. Now, this more noble way is what the entire Trinity did for the Blessed Virgin by the merit of the Passion of Christ, which was foreordained and accepted from all eternity. Let us once again follow Francis Lichetis, just as in relation to the Creator qua Creator, for his honour, there had to be found some creature that by reason of its creation was obliged to him the highest degree for the benefit of creation. And so Lucifer, among all creatures, was maximally obliged to him for the benefit of the creation of him among all other creatures. So likewise, in relation to God, the glorifier, qua glorifier, there had to be some creature who would be maximally obliged to him by reason of its maximum glorification. There are, in fact, degrees for some are glorified more and others less, and thus are more or less obliged for the benefit of glorification. So there had to be found some creature which was glorified more than all the others, and which would be more obliged than all to God for the benefit of its glorification. Likewise, in regard to God who glorifies, there had to be found some person made pleasing by grace, gratiam gratificam, who would be maximally obliged to God for such a great benefit of grace, beneficio gratificationis. Likewise, in the present case, namely the Immaculate Conception, 
in a relation to God, qua actually reconciling and giving innocence, there had to be found some human person who would be obliged to him in the highest degree for the benefit of reconciliation, which reconciliation, first and foremost, is considered as regarding innocence, because the more a person is innocent, the more he is reconciled to God. If then, some person must be found who is obliged to God in the highest degree by reason of reconciliation and innocence, this will be some one preserved from all sin, for it is a greater bond of obligation to be preserved from all sin than to be freed from committed sin. There must also be a person who is obliged in the highest degree to Christ as a meritorious cause of his reconciliation, and this for the benefit of a reconciliation of this kind. And that person will be obliged in the highest degree in whom there is perfect innocence, which includes the preservation from all sin. St. Therese of the Child Jesus, who probably never read a single page of Duns Cotis, develops the subject of her own preservation from actual sin and the consequent greater gratitude to God in perfect parallel with Scotus's argument for the preservation of the Blessed Virgin from original sin. And you can read the comparison in your own time. Page 9. Here we see the importance of Scotus's reasoning not only for Mariology but also for spiritual theology and for Catholic pedagogy based on prevention, St. John Bosco. Five, Debitum Peccati in Mariological Christocentrism. Here I will only touch briefly on the question of the debt, Debitum, because this theme will be developed in another talk. Everyone agrees on the principle. If God had not preserved her, Mary would have contracted sin. So as regards the debt, it seems necessary to accept a hypothetical debt, but it is not necessary to accept a real debt, because our opinion, like Montfortino's, sees the Virgin much more united to Christ and much less to Adam, as far as grace is concerned. The matter can be summarized and explained thus. The incarnation of the Son of God emerges as a work of pure grace, and because his own mother was closer to him than all the others, God predestined her to unutterable grace and glory, to such a degree that she could be called the one full of grace. In view of the same merits of Christ, God gave Adam justice for himself and for all of his other sons except the Virgin, whom God willed to subject only to Christ in the order of graces and not to Adam, except in natural propagation. It is evident that Mary was de facto completely free from the debt of contracting Adam's sin. This does not seem unconnected with the truth which reputes the justice and grace given the Virgin Mother to be far more excellent than that entrusted to Adam for himself and his posterity. In fact, she abounded with such excellence that the supernatural fullness of her gifts included even the inestimable gift of perseverance, which made its possessor cleave so immovably to her last end as to not permit her to deviate from it in the least. Further, that which Christ possessed in virtue of his birth, he obtained for his blessed mother by privilege. This certainly was not granted any other creature. Consequently, she alone merited to hear, Hail, full of grace, grace of which she could not be deprived, 
owing to the same gift of grace. She therefore immeasurably surpassed Adam's justice, which could be abandoned and was in fact lost. Hence it was less fitting to derive the justice which was given the Virgin from that granted Adam, and more so to derive it from a higher principle, namely directly from the meritorious cause of all grace and truth. Indeed, since the perfections found in the Virgin's fullness of grace could not in the least be discovered in Adam, how could he become or could it have been fitting for him to be the Virgin's head in the order of graces, when she was deemed worthy of far greater perfection in justice and in the quantity of graces? In conclusion, the real debt of conceiving a creature stained by sin was on the part of Mary's parents, since they were themselves stained by that sin and would have propagated it via natural generation. But there was no real debt on Mary's part. However, the fact that she had no real debt is to be understood in the sense that by the merits of Christ, God suspended that decree of propagation in Mary's case in such wise that nothing in her drew down, much less required, sin, so ordered and pure was her nature, so full was her grace. As for the consideration of the debt's foundation, it is not to be found in the notion of human nature itself, but in the nature of sin and of the way it is transmitted, a way established by God. The notion of human nature as such is therefore prior to both grace and sin. This is how it must be seen in Mary. The subtle doctor says that the Virgin Mary was a daughter of Adam in some instant of nature, and likewise that in that instant, properly speaking, she neither had grace nor was deprived of it. This is to be understood in this way, that of itself Mary's nature does not formally or by its nature include either grace or its opposite. It is, however, quite true that in that instant in which she had real essay of existence and in which she was a true daughter of Adam, she was in one of those opposed states so neither was formally included in her nature. The objection of the debt can also be eliminated in this way, which points out that its attribution to Mary's person means drifting perilously close to positions that smack of Jansenist pessimism. In fact, even St. Augustine, who more than others, stressed the real damage of original sin to the human nature so much so that he left himself open to the pessimistic interpretations of Lutheranism and Jansenism, states, It is not on its own account that human nature is under condemnation, because it is the work of God, and therefore laudable, but on account of that condemnable corruption by which it has been vitiated. Now it is by reason of this condemnation that it is in subjection to the devil who is also in the same damnable state. Thank you.